Ag is about ecosystems and we all live in ecosystems. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Friday, June 17th. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And I'm Katrina Stanislaw. Well, welcome, Katrina. And today, together, the three of us are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar! Oh. All right. Oh, that was, that good. was a good one, Katrina. That was like really guttural. Well, I have a, um, a not-so-secret love of pirate jokes, and I actually had a pirate-themed birthday party for myself a couple of years ago, so you didn't know you were playing to my strengths with that. <laughs> we could ask you. We both have pirate hats. You probably have one laying around the house. We could ask you to put it on. I have pirate straws. I have the whole regalia, so we really missed an opportunity there. It's funny. I'm a little bit of a Star Trek geek, and I was watching the new <laughs> Star Trek yesterday called Strange New Worlds, and it was about pirates who took over the Enterprise. And so I was like, oh, it's a pirate episode. That's fantastic. <laughs> so uh, first off, uh, good to see everyone. Thank you to our listeners for uh, catching up with Lucas and I. We are so happy to have uh, a dear friend of ours, uh, Katrina Stanislaw, as our guest today. And uh, we'll let Katrina talk here about her background a little bit, but it's really a special one for me because uh, I met Katrina through her father, who happens to be a gentleman named Joe Stanislaw who not only is a hometown Ohio Goomba, like a good Westerner like Lucas and I originally are, um, but really became one of my mentors in life in all things related to not just energy, but business and and how to do things. So it's a real pleasure for me to have Katrina on. So welcome, Katrina. It's great to see you. Thanks so much, guys. It's great to be here. Cool. Well, why don't we get right into it? Um, Since we had a lot going on, uh, you know, Katrina, tell us a little bit about yourself and I should also back up for one second and say, I've been wanting to have Katrina as a guest because the one area that we haven't really talked about on Pirates of Clean Tech is agriculture. And I think there is an incredible set of overlaps between clean technology and what's happening in agriculture and in so many different ways. So Katrina, please tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at the firm that you're at now, I believe called AgriDigital. Yes, of course. Um, well, I, I agree with you in the overlap between agriculture and clean tech. And um, my background actually is that I always had an interest in how we deal with the pressing environmental issues of our time. Um, Eric, you referenced my father. He's worked in energy his whole career, has been a real leader in the world of sustainable energy and how we bridge a dependency on fossil fuels um, to a, a cleaner energy space. And when I was in college, sort of early out of college, was trying to figure out how I worked on on these environmental issues of our time. And that got the reason I got into ag is that I was born and raised in France. So my father is an Ohioan, I am am not. Um, And that is a culture that is very tied to food and food sources. And growing up, we, um, you know, you, you're buying food from the producer very often. We spent a lot of time in the country where there were farmers around us, um, seeing how hard they work. So when, you know, when we're eating dinner at nine o'clock at night in July and seeing the, the tractors coming and going. And so that gave me a real um, appreciation for ag. And as I was figuring out my professional focus, what I really felt like is we have these huge macro environmental problems and they're so tied to how our economy is structured and it can feel very overwhelming on it as an individual but food is something that we all relate to and it is something we all have a connection to on a daily basis where we have power as consumers and I saw it and still see it as a really um, a powerful entry point 
into feeling like you have some some sway over where the world is going. And there's a whole host of opportunities that come through agriculture. Um, so I have worked in this space um, my most of my professional career. And my a lot of my interest has been how do we change the agricultural and food system so that small, medium-sized growers, producers, um, businesses can be more successful. And if you open that up, there's a lot of influence across the sector. And so I've done that um, on a regional scale and a national scale and an international scale, both working in the U.S. and in Europe. And about two years ago, um, I was working with a venture capitalist connecting investors and entrepreneurs and met a woman named Emma Weston, who is the CEO and co-founder of AgriDigital, where I now work. And AgriDigital is an Australian ag tech fintech company that digitizes and connects the grain industry to help strengthen relationships across the value chain and help businesses grow with confidence. And Emma's a very compelling individual. Um, this was during COVID. And the company had been trying to grow to the US, but the team was all stuck in Australia at that point in time. And so it was one of those real golden linings of COVID where they needed someone to lead the charge in the ground in the US. And we really had an alignment around vision and where the things needed to go. And what really was compelling to me is at that point in time, I'd seen a lot of very shiny, fancy sort of ag tech solutions and food tech solutions. And yet realizing that some of the core work to allow agriculture to move forward and to be more sustainable for businesses to be more sustainable was really missing. And so here's a company that was really looking at sort of the backbones and foundations of what, what needed to happen, that simple digitization in the industry that could then unlock so much more value. And so that was um, a really compelling way to, to get involved and sort of feel like, okay, there are a lot of different things you can do, but let's solve some of these root problems first that enable a lot of more value to be unlocked. Wow. You, you said a lot. Lucas, before you get to your question, it's funny that I didn't know AgriDigital is an Australian company. We had an Australian guest about uh, talking about power grid efficiency a few weeks ago. So mm -hmm. we actually have a small cult following in Australia now. So we're very <laughs> happy about that. Yeah. And when you brought up France, it reminded me of the semester I did in grad school where I lived in a French suburb of Geneva. And what I loved about it was our apartment refrigerator was so small, mainly because across the street was a farmer's market. And you really did your shopping every day to get the freshest foods. And like that culture of getting the freshest foods and preparing it immediately is something that's lost in America where, you know, we're, we're over cost code, if you will. And we don't think about the, the symbiotic relationship between the freshness of food and consuming it. We kind of think about the convenience of how to buy it and buying in bulk, et cetera. So uh, well, and it's, yeah, it's a powerful place. I and mean, I, I lived in Boston previously. I'm currently living in Bozeman, Montana. And I was part of a group there that called the Boston Public Market Association. And it was a $13 million public-private partnership to start um, to build a local regional foods hub in the middle of Boston. But it was so widely funded by philanthropy and um, by the city and the state because it was trying to build out a New England food system more regionally and looking at what that would, um, the impacts on that, you know, really from an environmental perspective as well as an economic perspective. And so there are a lot of different ways, you know, sort of levels you can work on this from, um, but there's a, a huge amount of potential in terms of what, what happens when you focus on that more value to the small and medium producer a lot, a lot can happen from there. And a lot of, and I think what's fun about it is there's a lot of interpersonal connection that, that people really find as well. Agreed. 
is agri-digital part fintech, like part ag tech, part clean tech, or what? what is it? Can you describe the company a little more? So we are part fintech, part ag tech, and you can help me diagnose if we are clean tech or not. Um, but we are a farmer founded company. So I'll just tell you a little bit about us and what we do and why we're a combination of both. So we were farmer founded in 2016 by three Australian farmers who had a uh, deep background in the grain sector. Um, and so what they really saw is this um, fundamental problem of ag is the least digitized industry globally. It's also the largest employer globally. And so it's it's a big sector, it's a big space, um, but lacking a lot of core digitization. And what this group went out to do based on previous experience is to find it, make it easier for all sizes of grain businesses to compete and work with the major industry players. So we work with farmers, with processors, with elevators, with traders, but it's all that same core function of digitizing their grains and then connecting that data for them. And so what we do is through that, what that means is that a grain business has real-time data on what they have. It's easy to share. There's a single source of truth for them to make decisions. And then because that business has much better business data, we are able to offer commodity-backed finance to small and medium-sized grain businesses so they can get more value from the grain. They don't have to sell it in order to meet business needs. Um, and I should note that we currently only finance in Australia, but we will hear it at a certain point in time, not too long from now, I hope. Um, and so this combination of connecting data across the supply chain and then improved access to simple technology, it really increases the competitiveness in rural economies, which is where these businesses live, right? Like we say, small, medium-sized businesses, but those are people and it makes them stronger. Um, and so that combination of offering finance as well as software is, is where we are. And those two go really intimately together. I will say that um, if you're not in the grain sector, you know, grains actually a $60 billion a year global industry, but it's, it's food, it's feed, it's fuel. Um, it's all of these things and moving away from you know, digitizing sounds like, okay, yes, but these are primarily paper-based businesses, but multi-million dollar a year businesses. And so I can't tell you how many hours my team and I have spent in offices of different grains businesses, whether it's farmers or um, you know, processors, where they have literally tens of thousands of pieces of paper that is their whole year business record. And, wow. um, and so we have all these very shiny you know, innovations and how do you get more yield and you know, let's get, um, I'm not going to slander any type of technology because they're all useful, but then at the same time, you have these businesses that have been operating <laughs> off of paper and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen in other parts of our economy. And so you, you've really got to help the businesses compete as businesses and be profitable as such for there to be any real possibility for them to grow, to invest in more sustainable environmental operations, et cetera. You know, well, this is, you know, as a little bit of a follow-up, and we were debating about this before you, you came on the air, you know, are you considered a clean tech as well as an ag tech and a fintech? And my thought is you're creating a lot of efficiency in the process, you know, uh, and you're, you're giving this competitiveness to small, medium farmers. And I think that improves on efficiency. When I hear the word efficiency in farming, even if it's indirectly, I feel like if the farmer is spending less time on the bureaucratic nature of the paperwork being a paper-based business and he's being more efficient, 
I feel like that like reduces waste in the long run, not just for like the office, the business side of things, but even like making sure that his product gets to market a little bit quicker, a little bit more efficiently. And so that's why I kind of think about agri-digital almost as a clean tech as well, because again, creating efficiency is something that needs to happen for us to tackle climate change because of the just incredible task in front of us to do so. The faster and smarter we do things, the better it is that we can actually hit our climate goals, you know, 30 years from now. Yeah, well, I I mean, I actually agree with you, Eric, and I think that's a really thoughtful diagnosis. And I probably won't go around saying we're ag tech, fintech, clean tech, because people will think, <laughs> what the heck are you? But, um, but these are all parts of the puzzle. And I think what we're all getting at, right, is that sustainability is the environmental, it's the economic, and it's the social. And I think if you're creating efficiency across these, if you're um, unlocking sort of I think in a lot of ways you have to sort of unlock the social and economic first to make way for the environmental. And so I agree with you. And so they're all pieces of the puzzle really is, is how I think about it. They're all sort of interlocking. No, that's, that's really well said. And, you know, the next question kind of ties a little bit into that as well, uh, but almost in an unfortunate reason, you know, grain has been talked about a lot lately on the news. And of course, the tragic reason is the situation in Ukraine right now, where there's a lot of stranded grain in the port of Odessa, probably some smaller ports. It's not getting out. The United Nations is uh, very concerned about, you know, emerging market economies, developing economies where a lot of that grain ended up. So I guess my question for you is, you know, because of the situation and the tragedy in the Ukraine, you know, and its impact on prices for consumers globally, does agri-digital in either a direct or indirect way contribute as a solution to these extreme circumstances from all the efficiencies that your firm brings to the supply chain in agriculture? Yes. I mean, I, first of all, I echo you. It's, it's a very, um, it's just a very challenging time to, to deal with all of these realities, right? Because there are some real upsides for grain businesses in other parts of the world, but with a very heavy acknowledgement of why that is the case. And I will tell you, um, you know, even farmers that I work with here in Montana are talking about the guilt that they feel in profiting off of a crisis where so many people are suffering and, um, and a real solidarity, you know, farming and ag is a very hard line of work and every farmer I know, you know, they know that a good year or five good years, there are bad years that will come thereafter. And so I've just found it actually really, really an incredible statement about humanity, how I've heard this come up multiple times that, you know, yeah, we're getting a better price, but we actually find that really hard to stomach because we know why that is. Um, So as far as how agri-digital indirectly or directly relates to all of this, I mean, the the short answer is in many, many ways, yes, we do. So, and if you zoom out a little bit, we've seen endlessly in the past two and a half, two years, how brittle supply chains are. And it amazes me how people who probably never said supply chain until two years ago, just, oh, it's supply chain, it's supply chain. Um, (laughs) Right. And that issue of brittle supply chains is exactly what we were created to do and work on. Because right now it's very much, you know, the, the farmer grows, they sell to the first buyer, and then the next buyer, and it gets consolidated. And it's just this very sort of rigid line of interaction. And so our primary starting point as a company is that that grain inventory that the farmer has 
is incredibly valuable. It's valuable to the farmer, and that is their data, um, but it's also valuable to the next party that they work with. And so as you look at these fluctuating markets and concerns about, okay, we've got famine in this part of the world, we've got grain that can't go out in this part of the world, for a farmer to actually know what they have, what they're able to sell, one, it's that security. Two, they can then, this is back to the issue of, sort of conflict on profit, they can um, they can more easily act upon opportunities that they might get a, a premium for their grain now. And so that's a, a huge thing. You know, they've got a real, they're able to look at, at what they have at any point in time, what's available. And for the the traders we work with, the storage operators, all of this is really is really very powerful. But I think it's important to think of what's happening right now. And this is an unfortunate point to make, especially on a Friday morning, is this is a, a terrible crisis. And it's very severe in terms of human impacts, both in the Ukraine, in terms of famine. But we are going to see these shocks over and over and over in different ways um, as we look at what's happening to our climate, as we look at drought and floods. And I'm in Montana, we're seeing a lot of floods right now. Um, it's not affecting agriculture at this point in time, but we're in a time where crises are much closer together. And so that all comes back to these critical commodities that literally power our economy, having a good handle on what is available, where it is, and also enabling the people who are creating that value to to know it, to capture it, to shift it where they need to, um, is really powerful. And so it's um, it's very much a part of where we are. And so if, I guess as a company, the one thing, and, and I'm really cautious about saying this because I think it's just also serious and concerning, but the value of that information is really important. And so it's never, um, it's, that's very present to everyone, how, how brittle supply chains are and how we do need to work on that at a, at a global and local level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So are you targeting the smaller farmers? Because we all know there's kind of a crisis in the U.S., right? That smaller farmers are getting pushed out by, by larger farmers. Are you targeting them and are you helping them? Yeah, so... And smaller farmers in grains, I should say, is quite different than smaller farmers in some, you know, in sort of fresh produce. And um, because grain farms tend to be, you know, a smaller grain farm that's solely grain will be, you know, a a thousand plus acres typically, whereas um, the average farm size in the U.S. is, I think, 444 acres. So, yes, we are targeting smaller farmers, but we are focused in this point in time in grains. It's just such a large market. Um, But one of the points that you're making, Lucas, is, you know, 90 percent of farmers need off farm income in this country, Um, which if you've ever been involved in farming and I have never been a farmer and I think I work in ag because I'm extremely humble about how extraordinarily hard work it is and that I don't think I'm particularly well suited for, but I think I can help on other fronts. Um, So we are, you know, we are very much targeting on that independent smaller farm, whether that's, or a complex operation. You know, there are a lot of farms who are, we have a sort of false dialogue about it's organic or it's regenerative or it's conventional. Many, many farmers are doing a blend of all of these and trying to understand, you know, how can their business be more profitable? How can they have an impact um, on the stewardship of the land? You know, no one is more incentivized than the farmer to ensure the land continues to be productive. And so you see a lot of farmers wrestling with this. And so where we're really helping them is 
as they try to add more value on farm, whether it's in how they produce or doing some value adding after the grain's been harvested, you know, giving them the sort of core business tool to manage that and then be able to get more value for that going forward. So yes, very much um, the smaller, but I do think it's worth noting. So that scope is a bit larger than, than we might think about it in other parts of ag. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's funny, based on your last two answers, Katrina, uh, you know, the question I have is, I think the U.S. does a pretty good job relative to others in terms of introducing technology into agriculture. Um, But are we doing enough? And what can, given all the uncertainty associated with these traumatic events that are happening more and more, and you mentioned, you know, the catastrophe near Yellowstone that could impact farmers or droughts, et cetera. Are we doing enough to get technology into the hands of farmers, bigger and smaller? And if not, what could we be doing as a country in terms of legislation, et cetera, to really promote and get that moving a little bit faster? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Eric. And, um, you know, we recently had this billion dollar um, ag bill from the Biden administration that's um, looking at sort of climate smart agriculture and sort of transition of ag and there are a lot of grants that are going to be written around that and a lot of um, tech tools that will be applied. And that's certainly something that I'm tracking closely. And I would say I sort of watch this space. I don't have a conclusion there yet. So I think there's a lot of good effort. I think what I would see and for very much from my perspective is that um, in some ways we put a lot of pressure on farmers to do more, do more, do more, you know, produce food and, um, produce it in a way that doesn't harm the environment and try this tool and do that and all the things you can do. And so to me, it's a little bit um, really focusing in policy and how we think about tech about the person who is in the business of producing that food in the the first place and the businesses and communities behind that, because if the businesses and communities don't thrive, then it's, that's not going to work. And so, you know, I live in a much more rural part of the country now than I used to, and you drive around different grain producing towns and you can see, you know, where, where businesses are thriving. And there's some really interesting towns um, near here, like Big Sandy, where they grow Kamut wheat and um, they've built a whole international Kamut business around it and invested in safflower, you know, having a safflower oil processing. And so there's, you know, it's really the communities around it. And so the way I think about it is that we shouldn't be so much thinking about do we promote more technology in agriculture, but rather what is going to allow the communities that are behind agriculture to thrive and to have a, a really thriving rural economy that then um, enables them to be more successful. And so I think it's sort of less the pressure of here, agriculture adopt more tool, but rather rather the root problems that are people are leaving agriculture, they can't afford to stay on the land, they can't produce better. And I think that's how I would, that's how I personally think about it. And um, so less sort of technology for technology shakes, but sake, but rather the those root issues. Well, no, you know what, that's so well said, because part of the reason we do pirates is we want to kind of humanize clean technology. And we also want to take it from it being an investment vehicle for big investment firms, private equity fund, and try to find a way to get it in, into the hands of people. So we try to put a human face on clean tech. And I think your answer is it isn't just always technology as a solution. Let's think about where the root cause of the issues are. And then we can you know take it a step further from there. And then maybe we can address with better solutions as opposed to cramming down technology into a farm or a community as a solution. I think 
that's a really, really thoughtful response to that question. So, yeah, thank you. Um, Katrina, it. a lot of our listeners are either starting their careers or they're making a career transition. So what would you recommend for them as a way to get into, uh, you know, ag tech, fintech? Yeah, well, I can speak more to the getting into the ag tech piece um, because uh, that's been sort of more of my journey. Um, and, you know, I think this whole sort of future of ag space is actually quite tricky to get into initially. There's not really a defined path. Um, and so what I've really seen is that um, it requires I think some persistence, but also just willingness to reach out to people you either know or know through connection or even hear on um, a podcast or an article and try and just get that initial conversation. And I found it to be a real industry of connections. And, you know, there's, there's not necessarily, I would say like a perfect CV to get you into ag tech. And so the way I, I think about it is, to find those connections, those things that spark your interest and to be willing to just jump in and, um, and get started because you can work in ag tech. You could be doing everything from what we're doing. So digitizing supply chains to impossible burger to drones, weeding a field and vertical gardens. You know, it's just a very, very broad space. And so my advice to people is also what, you know, what sort of sparks your interest? Who are you most interested in working with? Like, are you most interested in being close to the consumer? Are you most interested in being close to a CPG, to a farmer? You know, picking sort of a segment that is of high interest, finding a couple ins or an in and being really, I think, respectful of the time you take to sort of make those introductions, but also being bold about saying like, there's a problem here. I want to be part of a solution. And what is the one connection that someone could help you make that might get you into the field? Cause the one thing I experienced, and I, I hoped this, I hope this has changed, but is there is sometimes there's that um, you have to have experience to get experience conundrum. Mm -hmm. And what I really see is this is a really big space and a really big problem. And the more committed people who want to be a part of the solution, the better for all of us. And so whether or not you have, what you think is the perfect CV, it's a big problem and we need your help. And so um, being confident in that this is your offering value and offering to contribute. Um, and there, there are a lot of great resources to, you know, great podcasts, obviously you guys, Future of Ag is one that um, I think is great, Ag Tech So What. There's some great conferences like the Regenerative Food System Investment Forum is another one. And so, you know, sort of following these sparking your interest, not being intimidated by how broad of a field it is, just picking a space. And I always have faith that paths lead you to other paths you never foresaw. Um, then I think the one question that I really object to is, you know, where that someone starting out in this, in this field should know where they'd be in 10 years. And at the pace at which this field is changing, there's no way you can know that, I don't think. And so it's just getting in. And, um, and the one other thing I would say is, there is just no substitute for literally getting some dirt in your, on your hands if you're interested in ag and ag tech and just understanding on the ground what does this look like, um, whether that's a day at the farm or what it might be, but just constantly being in touch with what is the reality of how food even comes to our plates, I think is a really important part of just staying grounded. 
yeah. you know, it's funny. I'm going to, I'm going to make a pessimistic statement and then an optimistic one. Cause I want to end on a good note, but I read an article in the New York times a couple of days ago about all these people moving up from the city up to my area, the Hudson Valley, and they're buying farmland and they're leasing the farmland out to actual farmers, but they complain to the farmers about the smell. They complain about, well, we want to use the barn on weekends for weddings. So can you clean up the barn where there's like livestock in there? And there's this horrible <laughs> disconnect taking place, right? And you just shake your head about this. On the other side, though, to your point about kind of incubating the mindset, I do think over the last several years, urban agriculture has really, you know, grown. Because of the pandemic, people are growing, you know, I, I like to call them victory gardens. I think people in general are getting more in touch about their food and food sources. And I think children are seeing that. You know, I think about my father's, you know, garden when I was a kid. That was his stress relief from working in the steel mills. You know, he'd come and work in this massive garden and it really made me appreciate it. I think that's starting to permeate throughout the U.S. a little bit more. People are cognizant about where their food comes from. So I hope that, you know, that gives young children like more of an opportunity and exposure to think about ag tech and agriculture in general uh, as a solution, you know, as a career path. So I hope so. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right, Eric. And I you know, it's, it's hard to know when you work in the industry, right? Because you maybe see what you want to see, but the difference in connection to food and understanding of it, I think has changed quite dramatically um, in the past years and COVID certainly accelerated that. I mean, how many people baked bread who had never thought about baking bread in their lives? Um, but it's a real, it's really, um, and urban agriculture, I think is such a fantastic trend. And so I, I see that as well. And it's, it's very positive because, you know, fundamentally, and this is getting a bit big picture, right? It's, Ag is about ecosystems and we all live in ecosystems. And I think the past couple of years have made us realize how interrelated we are and how vulnerable we are to what happens across the world. And ag is a, is that is what agriculture is. And so I think that there's been this greater sort of awareness that many people have had of sort of the system we live in. And that's, that's a positive thing ultimately. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Katrina, I think this was, uh, and I'm sure Lucas does as well, this was a fantastic uh, episode with you and interview with you. And you gave us a great human perspective about your agri-digital. So you're taking ag tech and fintech and giving it a human face. And I think that's going to resonate very well with a lot of our listeners. So, I mean, for that alone, we really appreciate having you on. Well, thank you guys. It's been, it's been so fun to talk with you both and any connection that started via my father is always a great one. So I was going to have to say, I will say this, I'm drinking uh, coffee out of my Packard Motors coffee mug. And if anyone (laughs) in the car industry knows Packard started in Warren, Ohio. So I purposely chose this coffee mug in honor of the Stanislaw Planey and now Finco relationship. So uh, please give uh, your family our best. And thank you, Katrina, for being a wonderful guest on Pirates of Clean Tech. Thank you guys so much. Uh, and we are back. And uh, Lucas, I thought Katrina was fantastic in bringing up not just, you know, how her company AgriDigital is, is tying to making, making life more competitive for small farmers, but just the reality of that ecosystem and how important it is and how vulnerable it is. I think that's what she really hit, you know, and, and clean tech has to be a solution to it, but it has to be a, a human solution. Yeah, I didn't realize like how big of a deal that was going to be and how you know, it was going to tie back to basically everything and human civilization. Right? So I wasn't really prepared for that. No, but she's right. And you know, it's, what really touched me was when farmers are saying to her, we're profiting from this tragedy taking place and they have heartfelt sadness about it. 
these are people who, you know, in their times, we know the cyclicality associated with farming. So many farmers went through years and years and years, and some still are, of, of financial losses and suffering. And here in this blip in which they're actually profiting, they have heartfelt compassion towards others because of it. That, I mean, if that doesn't say anything about the integrity of the American farmer and farmers around the world, let's face it, there's a, there's a fraternity there. Um, I don't know what does, because I think that that was just truly, truly moving and captivating. Well, yeah, look what happens when they have a bad year, you know? So them, you know, how can they possibly feel guilty about having a new, a good year, you know? They do that, but that's just, that just says something about their character, right? So um, yeah. it's, it's just really, I, I loved having Katrina on and, uh, you know, I, I knew she'd be a good guest, but I didn't know like how touching and, and how, you know, informative and touching uh, really that conversation was. Yeah. So, so why don't we do a little bit of a lightning round uh, on our articles? I think uh, I can go pretty quick. And yeah, that sounds good. The first article I have actually ties, I wanted to do this purposely. It ties really into what Katrina was talking about. And uh, this is startupgenome.com, who I'd never heard of. Um, and I can't remember, this was just published recently, but I don't have a date here. But this is the Global Ag Tech and New Food Rankings, top 25 locations and 10 runners up for food, uh, food and ag tech kind of info, uh, infrastructure and ecosystem. And this is amazing to me, because actually, if we just want to focus on the key findings in this lightning round, the top five ag tech and new food ecosystems are Silicon Valley, New York City, London, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, which is really all of Israel, and Denver, Boulder. And, um, you know, North America and Asia are dominating the 25 ag tech and new food rankings. And Asia is funny. I, I would assume that also includes, um, no, it actually doesn't include because Oceania is listed having two. Yep. But uh, Katrina mentioned Australia. Um, this gave some numbers about the you know, number of new money on average entering um, ag tech companies. Uh, and then the one point here, due to shifts in consumer behavior and rapid innovation in the subsector, the share of food and energy and delivery deals has climbed steadily in recent years. I think that talked about people now it's on people's radar and the sensitivity associated with making sure our ecosystem and our supply system uh, for food delivery is getting more and more crucial. So putting more investment into technology to shore it up uh, makes a lot of sense. My quick conclusion here, it's a really good article. They kind of list like top 35, including honorable mentions. One thing that came to me is Silicon Valley, New York City, and London these are not agricultural centers of the world, but this is where the, the, the capital is, right? So yeah. are we doing a good enough job in throughout the whole entire world of actually connecting to those areas where the capital and the technology and the know-how should be connected? Katrina lives in Bozeman. Yeah. Bozeman should be on this list. Kansas City should be on this list, right? These, these agricultural centers in the United States, Omaha, for example. So it's great to see Silicon Valley in New York and London but I would rather see, you know, Bozeman, you know, uh, Albany, if you will, and like, you know, maybe the Midland section of the UK where there's probably a little bit more agriculture. Yeah, I was actually kind of shocked to see Denver Boulder on here because I know Denver has a startup scene, but I wouldn't put it on level with Silicon Valley. So that's actually quite interesting. But that's probably because the space they're in, right? So it's, it's a little bit of that. And there's actually, they actually talk about Denver just jumped into the top five because of a couple of transactions related to like one or two really big ag tech success stories that oh. kind of popped it up. So it's a little bit disproportionate. But okay. the thing about Denver Boulder is, you know, as soon as you go east of Denver, 
you've got the Rockies to the West, but East you're already, you're in Kansas. It's really, it's really yeah. a country out there. So Denver for me makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, it was a yeah. gateway to the West many years ago. So, and given that sev- several of our pirates live in Denver, I'm happy to see that. <laughs> That's true. Okay. All right. Uh, one of my favorite publications we probably don't quote enough is scientific American. So scientific American.com uh, engineers look to river and ocean currents for clean energy. And the DOE is helping to fund 11 projects that are de- designed to harness power and moving water. This is by John Fialka uh, on June 14th. Really quickly. We have talked about tidal and current energy in the past on pirates. Um, but again, it's starting to pop up again. And one of the reasons is, in different parts of the world, in rivers and oceans and streams, there is a great consistency among the power that can be generated if you're deploying new technology to harness it uh, uh, you know, within this uh, tidal technology ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So what I liked about this is DOE is funding some projects. The one they talked a little bit about was really cool. It's in California. It's called Manta. It's really called Manta because it's looking at like, you know, kind of like stingray sharks and the way their fins operate. And they're deploying like kind of this pulley system that would actually capture tidal currents that almost is based on that. When I was reading about it, it's almost like deploying a kite in the water, if you will. And the kite gets pulled in and pulled out and the waves from the kite itself, uh, you know, helps generate power. I thought this was a really cool article. Again, we haven't talked about tidal and ocean in a while. I think it also ties in very nicely as we're talking about ag tech a lot today. So I think this is a really good story. So great to see it. Cool. Yes. So we've talked about the East River in New York City, how the the water keeps damaging turbines it's trying to put in there because it's so powerful. So, yeah, I really want to see more development here. Okay. Speed round once more. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was the Alliance for Science at Cornell. What a great what a great website. Alliance for Science. Say that five times. (laughs) Uh, Slightly dated from May 23rd, but Finland's Green Party endorses nuclear power. Okay, And uh, first off, Finland's been in the news a lot lately because of its potential elevation into NATO, given the Ukraine crisis again. So I think Finland is starting to think a little bit more out of the box as time goes on. They're part of the whole great Scandinavian clean energy ecosystem. But this has been debated here on Pirates, and I think Lucas and I are in agreement that nuclear should be considered a solution uh, as part of uh, climate to address climate change. Mm-hmm. Now in Finland, they're talking about they overwhelmingly adopted a pro-nuclear stance as national meeting. And the one thing they're bringing back is something that's been dormant in the United States for over a decade, SMR or small modular nuclear reactor technology. This is like small systems that can almost bolt in where a coal plant is and you can use the same grid infrastructure instead of generating fossil fuel, um, using fossil fuels to generate power, you can use an SMR, which is virtually 100% clean. And so I was really happy about that. I have friends in Finland uh, in uh, economic development there, always really appreciated their economy, their feistiness. I mean, you want to talk about military preparedness. They are one of the most prepared countries in the world. They are just really smart about how they utilize limited resources smartly. And so I think this dovetails very well with the philosophy of Finland. Nuclear makes sense from a Green Party standpoint. Yeah, and I'm going to have an article too on SMRs a little later. And yeah, I just think they have to be part of our energy transition. They got to be part of our energy future. They're zero carbon. You know, we just have to have them. It's just the way it is. Cool. So those in a nutshell are my very quick stories. So over to you, Lucas. 
All right, so why don't we go straight to that one? Because I have an article here. This is from World Nuclear News from June 8th. U.S. and Canadian regulators complete joint review of terrestrials IMSR. So this is a uh, molten salt reactor, I believe, which is going to be a, a small modular reactor, which is SMR. Um, so those are a little different. Uh, terrestrial Energy said that the joint technical review of its integral molten salt reactor is an important step forward and paves the way for further cross-border collaboration. So this was very exciting to me. We've been waiting for small modular reactors for, what, over a decade since they were promised to us. Uh, there are a lot of regulatory hurdles that have to they have to go through. And so this is one of them. So this is very exciting to me. They're targeting uh, up to 390 megawatts equivalent. So that's what you're looking at here. This is a fourth generation reactor. I believe Vogel is uh, what, two plus plus or whatever they call it. So this is way more advanced. Um, very excited by this. I agree 100%. Um, you know, again, I've said this in the past, small SMR technology was really being developed in the early 2010s or late 2000s. And then, you know, when gas prices dropped so much, everyone said, ah, you know what, we can't compete against natural gas being right. that next fuel source, so energy source. So happy to see it back online and coming up. And I hope many American companies that worked on the technology, I hope they're dusting off their blueprints and going back into SMR. Yeah. Okay, next one here. This one straight from energy.gov, the Department of Energy. President Biden invokes Defense Production Act to accelerate domestic manufacturing of clean energy on June 6th. I don't know anybody who's not talking about this. We've been, you know, we've, Eric, you've called for on this show, a Marshall Plan for Clean Energy. I mean, this is pretty much it, right? Uh, the government's finally saying, you know, this is critical. This is war. This is the equivalent of war, right? We need the Defense Production Act. We need American companies to start manufacturing clean energy technologies. And I mean, in one way, it's like, it's about time. <laughs> Where you been? <laughs> yes, well, let me, let me, and let me, if I can give a little background to this, um, in February of this year, the DOE came out with a white paper about how to onshore and reshore supply chain for solar, wind, et cetera, back to the United States. So there's this incredible white, power, white paper. Uh, it's on the DOE's website. Take a look at it. It's extensive. And it's like, what good is that if we're not actually going to take action? Right. This is the action piece. And I'm really happy about it. I'm going to do a little personal shout out. Um, I wrote an article. I put it on LinkedIn. I actually think we need to take a step further. And I love Secretary Granholm, and I think she could be a candidate. I think we need to have another cabinet position in the United States as Secretary of Climate Security. Much like after 9-11, we appointed a Secretary of Homeland Security to coordinate all those offices in the U.S. that weren't talking to each other. Yeah. Climate security means action by Department of Energy, Department of Commerce, State Department, and the Defense Department, among others, right? I think we need to have somebody that's quarterbacking that initiative. This, this legislation here, or this inaction, if you will, or enacting by uh, President Biden goes a long way, what Lucas just said. I think we could take it a step further. We need to see have somebody blocking and tackling for generations now. And I think a cabinet-level position to do that would just be the right solution. Yeah, well, I'll definitely check that article out on LinkedIn um, that Eric authored also, yeah. Um, my final one is some good news. I want to rant and rave for a little bit. This is from autonews.com, automotive news. Big Chevy Bolt price cut may be a turning point for auto industry. Yes, I said price cut. 
I did not say price increase. Yes. As everybody's talking about. This is June 12th. This is huge. Yes. They're cutting the price of the Chevy Bolt like a massive amount, like thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, they're dropping it. Let's see. Cut the price by $6,000. They're going to get the starting price down to twenty six five, which is essentially where you were two years ago when you had the $7,500 um, incentive from the federal government brought you down to there. So now that they're getting their volume manufacturing up, which is precisely what that incentive was there to do, was to make up the difference between the, the small volume and the high volume pricing. Now that they're at high volume, they're at that price. So this is like, this is just a brilliant example of how precise and accurate incentives can be and, and how we can calculate, you know, volume discounts. This is just amazing to me. So now to rave even more. So now EVs are cheaper to buy, cheaper to operate and cheaper to maintain. So I, I, in, in two or three years, you're just going to see bolts everywhere. <laughs> this I don't is know. Awesome. Well, you know what? First off, hat, first off, full disclosure, I am a GM shareholder. <laughs> I was so happy to see this article. You know, the GM, the Chevy Bolt uses the battery technology developed with LG originally for the Chevy Volt, the plug-in hybrid. This is different than the Ultium battery that GM has built several plants with LG that's going into the new Hummer and the, the Cadillac Lyric, et cetera. I think so. This is a technology that's probably been fully amortized on their books so they can drop the price. And I think that's incredible. Um, I do wish I was sad to hear that, for example, GM had a Malibu hybrid that was getting 48 uh, miles to the gallon, and they stopped making that a couple years ago when they dropped the Volt with the V. I wish they would bring that back because in this current crisis, you know, having even hybrids that can get high 40s mileage is great. But this is incredible news. And this is great marketing on GM's part. And this is a great way to get EVs into the hands of people who can, you know, who are more sensitive to the increase in gas prices relative to their disposable income. So the timing could not have been better for this. Hats off to GM. Really, their company of the week, in my opinion. And uh, Luke is really happy that we're ending on this story. Great story that you brought up. Yep, that's all I got. Cool. Well, let's go quick again, real quick. Uh, the views and opinions expressed by Lucas and I are those solely of ourselves and not necessarily of any organizations we are affiliated with. Um, but, you know, and do your homework. If you're making an investment decision on any, based on anything we say, please talk to a uh, educated registered investment consultant and do your homework. Yep. Uh, as always, you can find us uh, on your favorite podcast site. We're on about a dozen podcast sites. You can search for Pirates of Clean Tech and click subscribe or follow, uh, whatever the button is there. And then we're also on YouTube. If you want to follow along on the articles with us, search for Pirates of Clean Tech. You hit subscribe and then you hit the little uh, alarm bell so you get the notifications on your phone like I do. Well, with that, uh, it's been a great episode with Katrina. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And we are the Educated Green Pirates of Clean Tech. <laughs> yeah, argh, argh.